gods, according to traditions. Now, this title deeply affected Alexander the Great. His mother, uh, Olympias, referred to him as uh, being the son of Zeus. And, and, and you wonder, would, would being told these things over and over again not change your outlook, change the way that you see yourself? Uh, and this was taking place in a time period when, when the gods were perceived as living entities and were considered a part of everyday life. And Alexander must have begun to believe in his own divinity uh, as a fact rather than as this sort of uh, special exercise of, of something like propaganda. Surprisingly, he died at the age of 33, so maybe not. And yet, kings and rulers and leaders throughout history saw themselves as gods and gave themselves titles as gods. But if you go to their uh, graves or their tombs, you will still find bones there. And as we look at Psalm 24 this morning, we want to look at the only legitimate God and King. The God who revealed Himself to one man in Abraham and the God who revealed Himself to those descendants of Abraham in the nation of Israel who appointed David and his sons to be kings, and from whom his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came. That God, who really exists, that sovereign, he is king. The one who is in charge of everything and everyone. And in the Psalms, we see that David is God's chosen ruler over his people. Chosen, yes. But we have to remember that David is also flawed. He's human. And he could never be the perfect king of Israel that, that the nation needed, that the world needed. But Psalm 24, nevertheless, focuses on the king of glory. The king of glory. The one who stands behind the monarch, who, who rules over his people. And it describes a ceremonial uh, a coronation. And it pictures God as the king. And the question is, what sort of king is God? And we begin by looking at verses 1 and 2, where we discover that God is the owner of it all. He's the owner of it all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or and everything in it. The world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So just so we get a, a clear picture of what David is doing here. He is zooming all the way out in telling of this narrative. He, he pulls us all the way out as far back as he can go. To take in the full picture of what's, what he's describing here. He wants us to have some perspective. And then he begins slowly to focus in more and more and more and more. As we, as we get closer and closer and closer and we're zooming in and we see that there is this hill on the earth. And then we zoom in again to this, this one place on this hill where God's Holy One can go. And, and, and there's this progression that takes place, this narrowing of our focus, a particular focus on who. 
This is the word that's repeated over four questions. Who? Who? And we'll get to that main point in a second. But first we want to see this large-scale view that David is, is putting forth for us, looking at the whole world. And the question, the who question, is not who is in the world, which is mankind, which is all of us, but rather the question is who owns this world? To whom does this belong? Who can claim ownership over this universe, this world, this earth? And the answer is obviously the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, the God who really exists. Kings and countries have have conquered territories and lands for millennia, but none of them actually owned the land that they possessed. And David is not just saying that God owns the world. He's, he's saying something more specific. The God who really exists, the God who has revealed himself to Israel, that God and that God alone owns the world. Because there is only one God who is. There's only one God who is I am. There's only one God who is Yahweh. There's only one God who is before time. There's only one God who was not created, but is creator. And he owns the whole world. He created everything. In fact, he created everything out of nothing. He needed no materials to begin the creation He can speak it into being. He can speak it into existence. And so there's nothing borrowed. There's nothing stolen. And so what are the implications of something like this? If the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of David, if that God owns the entire world, then Christianity is both universal... And it is exclusive. Because God will not be content with a Christian message that is only for a part of the world. He will not be content with a message that is only for America, or only for the English-speaking countries, or, or, or only for those countries and lands that have a Christian heritage. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Unlike you and I, where we find ourselves being foreigners when we go to a place that we're not familiar with, God isn't foreign anywhere. He owns the entire earth, and He owns all the people. And if He is the God who owns it all, then not only is He the only God for us, but He is the only God for everyone. They all belong to Him, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not. That's why I never understood the churches that invite uh, other religions to come and, and, and use their facilities, not in, in sort of an outreach uh, evangelistic uh, uh, method, but, but rather sort of this phrase, you know, we're, we're all in this together. It's never made sense to me. Or, or, or think about when a number of years ago when the Pope invited uh, 
member, uh, representatives from different religions to come to the Vatican. He allowed the, the, the uh, recitation of the Azan, the, the, the Muslim call to prayer, to be said in the Vatican. Uh, a song that declares that uh, Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. And everything else is false. All of this done in the name of peace. Peace is fine, but, but if you understand Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 for what they are, then you have to understand that there is one God, and He alone owns it all. And everything else is false. Anything else that ascribes divinity uh, or Godheadness to anything else is false. And it's being deceitful, which we read about in the text. That we have to understand that, that, that anything else, any other form of worship, it's also dishonoring to the Creator. Because they're not ascribing worth to the correct being, to, to, to the, one who, the only one who is valid, the only one who really has any authority, the only one that has any power, the only one that has any control. It reminds me of the, this insider movement that, that's kind of become a stranglehold in, in place, places like uh, Bangladesh and Pakistan where uh, uh, Christians will tell uh, people in these areas, you can hold on to Jesus in your private meditations and in your sort of private religious life, but then you go and worship whatever the God or the deities are in your, in your community so that you hold on to your community. And, 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 and this insider movement is, is wreaking havoc on people because they feel torn. I've seen interviews with these people who say, I don't know who I am. They don't know where their identity is. They've got one foot in one camp and one in the other, and they've been told that this is the right thing to do. And it's not just people who belong to God. It's everything in it, no matter what it is, whether it's money or property or people it's his, and we are the ones who are handling it. And so we need to think about how we handle the things that belong to God as stewards, as God's people. He has entrusted these things to us, and yet he owns it all. I think sometimes we forget that. But why? Why? It's first, why does he own it all? Because first... He made it, as we said at the beginning. He created it out of nothing. Therefore, it belongs to him. Second, because he is actually the manager of it. He manages it. He keeps and maintains the earth and all that is in it. Therefore, it belongs to him. It's the rightful ownership. And we are answerable to him for the way that we have handled his property, his things, the things that belong to him, people, Property, money, all of it. We saw some of this in Ruth, did we not? The use of the sandal and, and, and the, 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 the picture there of, of that the land ownership ultimately belongs to God. We're making a transaction of land here, but we're remembering that this land belongs to God. That's the first aspect of his kingship that David wants us to know about. God is owner of it all. Second, we look at verses 3 to 6. 
And we see the purity of this king, the purity of this king, the one who can stand, the one who can stand. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And we think of Psalm 2, where we read, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, it's likely that David wrote this 24th psalm after he became king. When he recovered the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark which symbolized God's presence with his people, the Philistines had defeated Israel and they had captured the Ark and David leads an army and recaptures the Ark of the Covenant and as they are taking the Ark back up the hill to Jerusalem, they place this uh, Ark of the Covenant on, on a, uh, a wagon with an ox, which is not how they're supposed to be handling it correctly. And then when one of the oxen slips, there's a man by the name of Uzzah. And Uzzah, in all of his good intentions, reaches out to steady the Ark. And what happens to him? He dies on the spot. God strikes him dead, even with his good intentions. <laughs> that would be terrifying. Imagine being in that community, and you know Uzzah, and you know his family, and you've seen this take place, and people are thinking, what is this? Everyone was terrified and afraid, including David. And for a while, they had to keep the ark outside in a, in, a, in a different location. And it was not brought into the city, which is where it's supposed to be. So when the time came to bring the ark into the city, David began to ask the question of verse 3. When the ark comes in, who will be able to stand before this, Lord? Who will be able to ascend with this ark? And David thinks it might just be possible, and so he lists the qualifications. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, that rules all of us out, doesn't it? And that is the problem. How is God going to keep this hill pure? How is he going to keep it as it was meant to be? He, he can't defile. It, it can't be done. Now, our hands, the, the, this term hands, it, it, it's symbolic of our, the things we've done. It's symbolic of our work. It, it's symbolic of the things we have made. It's symbolic of the things we have built up and the things we have torn down. It's a, it's a representation. And God says, the one who ascends my holy hill, the one who stands in my holy place, has Clean hands. All of our actions must be righteous. He goes even further. He has a pure heart. Now, we focus so much on the, on the, on the outside, on the outward appearance of things, don't we? We, we, we make sure that everything looks right and, and in order in our lives, even though more often than not, those things are very out of order the works of our hands can even appear clean 
and upright. Oh, but the heart, but the heart, your character, your thought life, your attitudes, they all have to be pure. What resentments we harbor, what anger we carry, what our motives are, when others see us doing the right thing and they applaud us, well done. But God knows the real reason why we've done something. It reminds me of the story of uh, the elderly man who found a, a magic lamp on the beach. And after picking it up and rubbing the lamp, the, a genie suddenly appears and says, Because you've freed me, I will grant you a wish. This is a true story. <laughs> and after a brief moment, uh, the man said, You know, my brother and I had a, a horrible fight 30 years ago. And he hasn't spoken to me since. I wish that he would forgive me. And then there's this sudden thunderclap. And the genie says, your, your wish has been granted. And a few moments pass, and the, the genie said, you know, most men would have asked for wealth or health or fame, but you wanted your brother's forgiveness. Are you, is it because you're old and you're about to die? He said, no way. But my brother is, and he's worth $60 million. God is not fooled by outward appearances. He looks at the heart. He always gets to the heart of the issue, to the heart of the matter, what our thought life is like. And so if the people with the ark are ascending God's holy hill, they can do so if they have clean hands and a pure heart. But then he adds to it, verse 4. This person has to be completely loyal. Not chasing after hollow and, and empty idols. And as far as others are concerned, this person has to be completely honest. Not swearing by what is false. Now, says David... If the one carrying the ark can live like that, then they stand a chance to come to the hill and not fall dead like Uzzah did. And there is the problem. You have to be like that. Not because God likes setting up impossible puzzles, but simply because He is like that. If you are going to dwell with God, if you are going to know this God, then you have to be like Him. This is His character. This is what He is like by nature. He's holy. He is separate. He is totally committed to purity. What would it be like to never have had an immoral thought? What would it be like to never have lied about anything? What would it be like to never have uh, put yourself forward, to not have portrayed yourself in a much better light, to make yourself sound good, never to have been bitter, never to have been resentful, never to have held a grudge, never to have acted selfishly? And those are just the negatives. What about the positives? What would it like to have always loved God with all of your heart? 
What would it look like to have always loved God with all of your mind? What would, it look, what would it look like to have loved God with all of your soul, your strength, to have always acted sacrificially, to always have served others with joy and not grumbling? Now, this is getting closer to what God requires because that is what God is like. And if you want to stand before God and not be burned up by His purity and not be struck down by His holiness, if you want to know this God and live beyond judgment day with Him forever in glory, then you have to be like Him. You have to be completely holy. You have to be completely pure. You have to be totally honest. And none of us can live like that. It's impossible. Who will ever be able to get up this holy hill and stand in this holy place? David, you're making these qualifications an impossibility. Who will ever be able to meet God? You'd be safer swimming in the ocean with fish chum and blood all around you than to come before the holy God the way that we are. And even if you could do these things once, could you do them continually? Could you keep it up? Could you remain there? But, says David, if you could be pure and clean and honest and upright, then, verse 5, you would receive God's blessing and His vindication, His righteous vindication. If only we could do those things, then God would bless us and vindicate us and justify us, liberate us. So David presents us with a God who is the holy king, a sovereign who is absolutely pure, and on the surface, these verses imply that we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord because of our moral filth, our, our sin nature. The way to God, this God, the God who owns everything, the God who really exists, there is no other God, the way to this God is barred to us. I think of when, uh, when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, and the, the, the angel stands there with the sword flashing, right? It is barred. You have no entry here. We cannot stand in His holy place. Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Back to Psalm 24, we still have the same problem. Because the problem is not going to go away. We can't just wish it away. We can't think of something else. The problem is still there before us. And until it is resolved, it will not go away. And so David comes back to it again. The situation seems impossible, and now we turn to verses 7 to 10. 
Because here David presents us with the overcoming king, the sovereign who has fought a battle and won and been victorious. So David has moved from the big picture, the whole world, the earth is the Lord's, to one hill, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And now we're at the top of that hill, the gates to the city. Lift up your heads, O gates. And the picture here again is the king is coming back to his city, having fought this great battle and having conquered his enemies. And the overcoming, victorious, conquering king comes to the gates. And the cry is, who's there? And the reply is, the king of glory. Open up the gates. And the question comes again. Who is the king of glory? And the reply, the Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So this isn't David coming in to a city after a battle. This isn't David. No, the Lord, it is the one from verse 1 who owns everything and everyone. This God is coming to his city. Verse 9, lift up the gates, raise them, pull them up, and let this victorious king this king who has been mighty in battle, this king who has been great and victorious with armies, let this king in. And again, the question comes, who is the king of glory? And the answer, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. All of this makes sense in the context of uh, the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. David brings the ark back, and Jerusalem is established, and the Lord is, is there amongst his people, and all is right with the world. If only it stayed like that. But of course it didn't. It couldn't. Because chosen though David was, king though David was, he was flawed, and his hands were not clean. And his heart was not pure. Who is this king strong and mighty? Certainly not David. No, it's the one who would leave the splendor of heaven. It's the king who will be born in a place without a place to lay his head. It is the king who, as was prophesied, would be born of a virgin. It's the king who does have clean hands. It's the king who does have a pure heart. It is the king who does not lift up his soul to what is false. It is the king who does not swear deceitfully. It is the king who will offer himself as sacrifice so that, verse 6, the generation who seek him, who seek his face, can ascend that mountain in him. It's Jesus, our God, our Savior, our King, the King of glory. And He does not just ascend the hill in Jerusalem. No, He sends to the far greater height, to heaven itself, the holy place of which the ark and the holy of holies were just mere shadows of the reality. Therefore, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the gates, the ancient doors are opened to Him. 
God's obedient son, David's descendant. And he enters into heaven triumphant, triumphant over his victory over our sin, over our death. You and I are not able to ascend this hill. It is an impossibility. We've made that abundantly clear. We do not fill those qualifications. No one can. Our our hands and our hearts are unclean. Jesus, the Holy Son of God, dies. He takes upon Himself God's pouring out of His wrath against our sin And that is absorbed by him and he pays for it with his life. And he takes it all willingly and lovingly. And because of him, people like you and me with dirty hands and unclean hearts can come close to him now and forever. Just as the actions of one member of a team take effect for the whole team... One player scores the winning goal, but the whole team has victory. The whole team wins. Even though the, the, the team members haven't contributed anything, and if anything, the team members are actually making it difficult for one another. So all on Jesus' team enter into heaven because of what he has done on our behalf. We ourselves are excluded but because he has acted for us and the, and the gates of heaven have been opened for him. And because we, those of us who have put our faith and our trust and our hope in him, and because we belong to him, those gates are open for us as well. And even now we have access to God through our King Jesus. What joy shall fill our hearts To think there was a hill that not one of us could ascend. Since the beginning of time, man has been trying to ascend this hill. The the Tower of Babel was an attempt to ascend the hill. All man-made religions are an attempt to ascend this hill. And to think that not one could do it. To be with God. But Jesus came, and he willingly gave himself up so that we, so that we, the body, us, corporate, here together, can ascend that hill in him. In a minute, we're going to celebrate this king of glory in a, a meal of remembrance. The meal that signified This righteous one who ascended the hill of the Lord and descended to earth to make our ascension possible. How fitting that we spend this time recognizing our inability to ascend the hill of the Lord on our own with our unclean hands and our uh, uh, impure hearts. But he calls us to confess these things to him. And he calls us in Corinthians, Paul tells us that we are to put on the righteousness of Christ. Almost like putting on a coat. So let's pray 
And then we'll celebrate in the Lord's Supper together. Father, I think we can all feel the weight of the impossibility of the standards for which you have set. For David has laid out the qualifications and we meet, we don't even meet one of them. We are so far wretched and, and apart from the, what is required for ascending your hill to be with you in your presence. And yet from the beginning you knew that this would be the case. And from the beginning you had set out to send your son. That those of us who are called, who put our trust in Christ, who put our hope and our very lives into his hands would ascend that hill not on our own strength, but through what He has done. And so, Father, as we think of these things, we want to celebrate the means by which we have access to You through the death and resurrection of Christ. So, Father, remind us of these things. Remind us of the chasm that lays between us, but remind us of the nearness with which we draw to You because you have drawn us to yourself. The whole earth belongs to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.